Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com. Okay, so it's going to be helpful if you have uh, your Bible out and uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. That's where we are this morning, Romans chapter 8. If you've been kind of with us over the last several months, you know that we have been traveling through Romans chapter 8, called by some the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible, and we've just gone verse by verse through it. And uh, last week, we found ourselves in Romans eight twenty-eight. One of the most encouraging, affirming, uh, just promise-holding sort of verses in the entirety of the Bible. I just, if you were here last week, I just hope that was so encouraging to your soul to hear Paul say that God is working all things for the good. And who in here doesn't need to hear that sort of encouragement, that sort of, you know, that, that promise keeping God make those sort of promises to us. We all need that. And the reason we need that is because we all live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, there are both great moments and there are a ton of gory moments, hard moments, moments full of suffering and hardship. And, and passages like Romans 8.28 are written into those moments when we find ourselves there to encourage us. Now, remember the big point of Romans 8. If there is one theme that sits over the top of the entirety of Romans 8 that Paul is trying to, to encourage us toward, trying to hold up and help us see, it is the theme of assurance. Paul actually wants us to know that we are loved by God. And not just know it intellectually, but know it deep down in our bones. He wants us to know and really feel that the love of God is unshakable in our life. There's not going to be a day that you wake up, one, you know, one of these days where God stopped loving you, where he's let go of you. That's never going to happen. Paul is trying to cement that in for us. He's trying to show us that that is true, that the love of God will not stop. You could summarize Paul's teaching in Romans 8, 28 like this. No person... No evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or sin done against you can block God's plans for you. Now, is that not great news for us in the room? That no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. God is bigger than people. He's bigger than your sin. He's bigger than sin done against you. He's bigger than tragedy. He's bigger than cancer. He is bigger than everything. And because he is bigger and stronger and wiser than everything, he can bend all things in your life for good, for his purposes, his glory, and and your good. Part of what Paul is trying to show us, here's the assurance he is trying to impart to us from Romans 8, 28. He is trying to show us that in the safe harbor of Romans 8, 28, the storm waves of life, they can break against us, but they can never ultimately break us. Paul's intent is to fortify our hope. Paul's intent is to show us that our hope is unshakable because God's love for us, for his sons and daughters, because God's love is unshakable. And who doesn't need to be reminded of that? Listen to one commentator encourage us like this. He says, life often feels like defeat, doesn't it? Does your life sometimes feel like that? Oftentimes feel like that? My life oftentimes feels that way. I'm living on a certain day and it just feels like the the storm waves of life are breaking so hard against my life that I just feel defeated with my life. Now, Now listen to what he goes on to say. Life often feels like defeat, doesn't it? So in light of that, Paul wants us to feel something else. 
It is as if Paul invites us to bend down with him and to touch with our hands the bedrock underneath us. I love that imagery. And this is what Paul's inviting us to do, to bend down, to get down our hands dirty in the dirt and to bend down and to touch the bedrock underneath us. What is that bedrock? The absolute certainty of God's eternal love toward us. And not only to touch that bedrock, but to stomp on it with our feet to feel its absolute solidity so that we become convinced that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that's what Paul's doing. And Paul is not okay with you just knowing mentally that God loves you. He wants to convince you experientially that God loves you. He doesn't just want you to know that there's the bedrock of of the certainty of God's love in your life, if you're a son or daughter of, of God. He wants you to stomp on that love for a while so that you'll experientially know that that bedrock is there. That's what Paul is after, that sort of deep assurance. And this is the reason Paul writes Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now today, that was last week. Now today we're gonna do 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, Paul is doing two things in verses 29 and 30. And I want you to make sure you see the two things he's doing. The first thing Paul is doing is he is answering the question, what does it mean in verse 28 to be called according to the purpose of God? Verses 29 and 30 answer the question, what does it mean to be called according to the purpose of God? Paul is expounding on what he finished with in Romans 8, 28. So that's thing one that he's doing. But the bigger thing that he is doing, the overarching theme of Romans 8 that this verse is underneath and supporting is Paul is pressing us further into the assurance that he wants us to feel. Paul is pressing us further into the absolute certainty of God's love that he doesn't just want us to mentally know, but he wants us to experientially grab and live in. Paul's doing that too. So the two things, he's explaining verse 28, what it means for all things to work to, you know, according to his purpose. And secondly, he's trying to convince us of our assurance. That, that's the big thing. Now, let me just give you this mental image as we unpack this ver- these two verses. This would be a good like, way for you to picture what, what Paul is doing here. In verses 29 and 30, it is if Paul is saying, I want you to look up to heaven and I want you to see God's hand in heaven. And flowing out of God's hand is a chain. And this chain is unbreakable. There is no, there, there's no blowtorch, there's no bolt cutters that can ever break this chain. It's an unbreakable chain. So out of God's hand flows this chain and the chain has five links in it. The five links are these five verbs that show us the purposes of God in your life and my life. So the five links are those five verbs. So you've got this chain connected to the hand of God. This chain now is flowing down out of heaven. These five links, these five verbs in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And then God buckles this chain onto our belt and he says, I want you to see this unbreakable chain. That belt is fastened and that fastener cannot be broken. The links cannot be cut. And God promises that he will never let go of that chain so that you can be absolute certain that if you're connected, if the the chain is fastened to you, that you're secure in Jesus. 
that you can be absolute certain of the assurance that God will never let go of you. This is what Paul is pressing us toward. This is what he's wanting us to see. This is what he's wanting us to experientially feel in this passage, the certainty of God's love, that you are connected, if you're in Christ, to an unbreakable chain. The chain's got five links. Let's look at each of the five links. Link number one, you see it in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, link number one is God foreknows us. We're fastened to a chain, it's unbreakable, God's got it in his hand. He will never let go. The point is to convince us of our, our security in Jesus. And the first link of this chain that's around, that's fastened to our belt is foreknowledge, that God foreknows us. Now the question becomes, what does that mean? And that answer has tripped up many people. What does it mean? What, what does the foreknowledge of God mean? Now, many people, when they read uh, Romans 8, 28, they think that foreknowledge means foresight. In other words, that God looks down the corridor of time and sees what we will and won't do, and that is God's foreknowledge. Now, let me be clear that the Bible does teach that God foresees everything in that sort of a way, that God does have foresight. Um, Isaiah in Isaiah 46 says that God knows the end from the beginning. That is foresight, that God sees it all. He knows it all, what we will and we won't do. But I don't think this word can mean foresight in this passage. And here's the reason, uh, one of the reasons why. One reason why it can't mean foresight is because God knows everyone, what everyone will and won't do. But we know that, that foreknowledge in this passage is also connected. The next link in the chain is God predestines us. The next link in the chain is that God calls us. The next link in the uh, chain is that God uh, justifies us. The final link in the chain is that God glorifies us. Like we finally find ourselves in heaven someday loving Jesus. And we know that although God, he, he foresees everything, he knows everything about all people, that not everyone ends up in heaven, Right? Not everyone is conformed to the image of Jesus. Not everyone loves Jesus. So we know that this cannot mean just mere foresight that God knows everything because God knows everything about all people, even people who are not glorified or justified. So we know it can't mean that. So what does it mean? Now, I think that the best way to get to the meaning of foreknowledge in this passage is to, uh, to go ahead and just set aside the prefix. So we're gonna set aside the word for, we'll come back to that in a minute, set aside that, and then let's work on the word to know. Knowledge, like what does it mean for God to know something in the Bible? Now we could spend a whole sermon on this and I've got five links of the chain, so we can't spend a whole sermon, but I wanna just tease out in a couple of passages um, what it means to, for God to know in the Bible. And it's a lot richer and deeper and wider and bigger word than we would typically use for know. Like when you and I say no in our 21st century vocabulary, when the, what we mean, what the Bible means by no, the Bible means a lot more than, than, than we mean. So let me just illustrate this. Um, let me start in Exodus chapter two, verse 25. And I'm gonna start by reading the ESV. It says this, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is when the people of Israel were suffering in Egypt. God knew. Now, think about what the ESV is. It's the, it's the version that we use to preach from. And here's the reason we use it. It's because it's a more wooden or literal translation of the original language. It's the reason we use it. It's, it's trying to give you, like, what is the word in Hebrew? And that word in Hebrew is, is to know. It's, it's the Hebrew word to know. And it would parallel the Greek word that we find in Romans 8, that word to know. So the, they're parallel words, same words in, in Greek and Hebrew. 
And so it's just translating, it's just giving us the word. It means to know. But now the NIV, it does the translating work for you. The reason we preach out of the ESV is I don't think it should do the, the translating work for you. I think you should know when you read the, you know, when you read Exodus 2.25 and Romans 8, that you're dealing with the same word to know. But if you read the NIV, it's gonna translate the word to know to give you the sense of what that word means. Now, let me read the NIV. This is giving you the sense of the word. Uh, Exodus 2.25 in the NIV. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It doesn't translate it to know, it translates it concerned about. Now, why is it doing that? Because it's showing you the word to know in that text in Exodus 2 has the sense of, God is lovingly concerned about his people. It's bigger than just foresight. It's like this loving concern that God would have for, for his people. It's translating the sense of it. And the sense is to care about. Okay, let me give you Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter one, verse six. Here's the ESV. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's the same words, the Hebrew word to know, parallel to our word in Romans eight. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the NIV. This is going to give you the sense of that word to know. For the Lord, doesn't translate to know. It does, it, it does the translating work. It interprets it for you. It gives you the sense of it. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now the NIV is showing us the sense of the word. The sense of that word to know there is to lovingly watch over his people. Okay, so the first one is to lovingly care about. This one is to lovingly watch over or be devoted to his people. Um, Amos chapter three, verse two. Here's the ESV of that, the English standard version. You only have I known, there's our word again, known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. But here's the NIV of the exact same passage, Amos 3, 2. It's gonna give us the sense of that word. You only have I known chosen. So where no is in the ESV, chosen is in the NIV. It's the sense of it. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will, I will punish you for all of your sins. The NIV is giving us the sense of it. It means to choose, to, for God to lovingly choose his people. Uh, and let's fast forward to the New Testament. In Matthew chapter seven, we see another kind of example of this. Uh, context of that passage, Sermon of the Mount, and Jesus is making the point that not everyone who calls to him, you know, or says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And some of these people who are not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven are gonna do great things for God. I mean, they're gonna be, I mean, just in all sorts of great ministry doing great things. But then God says about these people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, he, he says this about them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That can't just mean foresight because God foreknows everyone right? It means something more than that. It means that, that God would lovingly like bring into his family, rescue and redeem. That's what the word know there means. It's bigger than just foresight. It's this loving like action by God where he brings us into his family. Okay. So let me just tie all that together. And uh, here would be the, the, I think the most accurate translation of the word to uh, foreknow. To foreknow, I think in Romans 8, 29 means to forelove. To foreknow means to forelove. You might just write the word forelove out beside Romans 8, 29 and just draw a line over to that from foreknowledge. I think it would give you the best sense of the word. Now, when you add the prefix back on, the prefix for is important and it's showing us something. It's showing us that God loved us previous to us. In other words, it's trying to convince us that we did not make the first move toward God. God made the first move toward us. 
It's not that we desired God and somehow melted God's resistance toward us. It's not that. It's that God desired us and he melted our resistance toward him. From God's perspective, if you're a Christian, Here's, here, this is the, the way it did not work. It's not that you, you know, continually stiff-armed God, held God at bay, and, and then one day you informed God that God, now you can come into my life. That is not how the Bible presents this. From God's perspective, it goes like this. He lays hold of us. He sets his affection on us. He breaks all of our resistance to him. And then he brings us into his life. That's how the Bible presents that. From God's perspective, we don't find God because God's never been lost. From God's perspective, he always finds us because we're the ones that were lost. So part of what it means for God to foreknow us, what Paul's trying to convince us of, is that, our, that the genesis, the start of our relationship with God is not in you, but it's in God. 1 John 4.19 is an example of this. 1 John 4.19, John says, we love. Now, why do we love? Answer, he says, it's because, this is the purpose. It's because he first loved us. That's what foreknowledge is teaching us. We love because he first loved us. Way back in eternity past, before you were ever born, Paul is saying, God set his affection on you. God set you apart. He loved you way before you were even you. He loved you. That, that's what Paul is getting after. And remember here, the point is assurance. Paul's point here is to assure us that God has loved you. He'll never stop loving you. He started way back before you were and he's going to continue all the way through eternity. God loves you. This is what he's trying to convince us of. But then you get to the second uh, link in the chain. So link number one is God's foreknowledge. God foreknew us. Then you get to the second link in the chain that God predestined us. You see it in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Have you ever been on a plane where the pilot came over the, you know, the loudspeaker and he said, uh, Everybody, please put your seatbelt on. We are expecting turbulence. Have you ever heard that moment? Now that is what any passage in the Bible that uses the words predestined oftentimes creates in people's hearts. It creates all sorts of anxiety in us. Now let me just say just a brief word kind of to just introduce this idea. R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite theologians. And in his first uh, pastorate, his first church, he had a little sign on the edge of his desk that read like this you are required to believe and teach and preach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. Now, that is a great word for any of us as we read any passage that doesn't square exactly with what we want it to say. Our obligation as a Christian is to come to the Bible with a humble heart, ready to stand under the Bible and allowing it to inform how we think of God and the world, not us come to the Bible with our preset way we see the world and then we squeeze the Bible into that. So we've got to make sure we're coming to the Bible, allowing it to inform us, not coming to the Bible in an effort to inform it, right? Okay, so with that said, let's dig into this word. What, is it, what does the word predestined mean? It comes in two parts, okay? The two parts of it are pre and destined. Pre, the prefix pre means to do something before. Destin means to determine something beforehand. So you put those together and you get the sense of the word. Now we see this word come up multiple times in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of them. In Acts chapter four, verses 27 and 28, you see the word used to describe how God ordains and works in world events. So here's how it's used in Acts chapter four. Verse 27 says this, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom you, God, appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. So the Bible is saying that the death of Jesus was according to the predetermined plan of God. Like God had a plan. He set the plan in motion way before time and that that predetermined plan played itself out in human history in Acts 4, right? Okay, so it's used to describe world events like that. Now, it's not just used to describe world events. If you get to Ephesians chapter one, it's used in a context very similar to how it's used in Romans chapter eight, not for world events, but for particular events, namely the particular events of people, God's rescue of people, God's salvation of people. So this is how you see it in Ephesians chapter one. Verse four says this, even as God, he chose us, There's your foreknowledge. That's link one in the chain. Even as he chose us, foreloved us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse five, he predestined us, there's that word, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see it also in Ephesians 1 verse 11. Now, this passage in in Ephesians 1 is similar to Romans 8. It's not talking about world events. It's talking about the particular events of God's rescuing work, his saving work in individual lives. And so if you were in Ephesians 1 to ask Paul, Paul, why are we adopted? In Ephesians 1, his answer is because we were predestined. And underneath we were predestined, it was we were foreloved or we were chosen. Link one and two of the chain. He's just affirming what he's saying in Romans chapter eight. Now I wanna clarify a couple of thoughts around the word predestined. Um, Three quick thoughts on this. Number one, um, the word is biblical. In other words, the word predestined is not a word or a phrase that is imported into the Bible. It's a word that we find in the Bible like repeatedly in the Bible. So, you know, in a lot of ways, when we find words like this in the Bible, it forces the question back on us. Are we willing to allow our theological conceptions of God and the world, are we willing to allow it to be shaped by all of the Bible? Like, are we willing for that to happen? So in a lot of ways, a moment like this just forces that question back upon us. Are are we allowing our view of God and the world to be shaped by all of what the Bible says? Um, The word is biblical. Number two, the the word has purpose. Um, Romans 8 walks us into some of the purpose. Romans 8, 29. God doesn't just do his predestining work for no reason. He does it for a purpose. And here are the purposes we see in Romans chapter 8, verses 29. One purpose is to conform us into the image of Jesus. You see it right there. Why why did he predestine us? So that we would be conformed into the image of his son. That God does not predestine us to to a life of like self-indulgence and ease. That's not what it's saying. But he predestines us for a life of transformation into the image of Jesus. Now think about how incredible that is. Here is what Paul is saying in that phrase. Well, let me back up and say this first. Have you ever just looked in the mirror and just kind of been discouraged by what you see in your life? I am like that all the time. I look in the mirror and I'm like, God, how long is it gonna take for you to make me into something a little better than this? How long is that gonna take? Now, part of what he's saying here, and he predestined this, you know, to be conformed into the image of his son. Part of what God is saying is, Rodney, I am 100% committed to making you into something great. I know you can't see it. I know it's slower than you would like for it to be. I know it's oftentimes discouraging because it feels like you take one step forward and two steps back, but I am 100% committed to conforming you into the image of Jesus. I'm committed to that. 
I mean, just feel that assurance this morning. If you're in your life right now and you're like, man, I just cannot kick some of this sin out of my life. What is wrong with me? Man, just feel God say to you, I am committed to doing that for you. I'm committed to, to working with you, to conform you into the image of Jesus. That's one purpose of his predestining work. The other purpose of his predestining work is to give glory to Jesus. You see that in this, the last part of verse 29. In order, so he conforms us into the image of Jesus. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what is the firstborn? The firstborn is the place of preeminence, the, the place of exaltation and glory. And he is saying, why am I predestining you into the image and conforming you into the image of Jesus? Here's why, because I want Jesus to, to be lifted up and exalted and to be seen for who he is. That's why I'm doing all of that. So what is God's predestining work doing? It is conforming us into the image of Jesus. It is giving much glory to Jesus. The predestining work of God has purpose. And lastly, and this just ties right back into the theme of Romans 8. This word, predestination, uh, foreknowledge, those sort of words, these words, the intent of those words, now hear this, this is so important. The intent of those words is comfort, not controversy. The intent is comfort, not controversy. So if when you hear these words, your inner lawyer rises up and it just wants to send objection after objection up to God, before you allow that inner lawyer to start speaking, just consider the story of Jeremiah. Do you remember Jeremiah, the old prophet in the Old Testament? Jeremiah, that brother had a hard life, as hard as anybody's life that you would know. That brother had a, his, his life was so hard, he's called the weeping prophet, right? His life was so hard that he wrote a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's a whole book of the Bible just with Jeremiah lamenting life that he sees, like his life, other people's lives, the difficulty of life. He wrote a whole book on that because his life was so hard. You know, it's funny for me to think, I, I've been in pastoral ministry for about a decade and a half, and I have fought like real deep seasons of discouragement in ministry. And that is even in the middle of ministry that has been fairly fruitful. Like I've not been able to see God doing really great things and I still get so discouraged at times. And it's interesting for me to look at Jeremiah who he labored his entire life. He never saw fruitfulness. He didn't have a long list of conversions from his ministry. He didn't have people who were wanting to listen to him. He was preaching and nobody listened to him. As a matter of fact, they all wanted to kill him. That's what they wanted to do with him. And in Jeremiah 20, he describes the difficulty of his ministry. And listen to how he describes this. God had called him into ministry, but listen to what he says to God in Jeremiah 20. This is how hard it was, how discouraged he was in his ministry. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. I was deceived. God, you called me into this. It's going terrible. I can't imagine it being worse than this, God. I, you deceived me. I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become, listen to how he describes his difficulty. I have become a laughingstock all day long. He goes on. Everyone mocks me. All day long, every day, here's what people are doing. I'm preaching, and in response to my preaching, they are mocking me. Verse eight, for whenever I speak, I cry out and shout, violence and destruction. That was the message God gave him to preach. No one wanted to hear that message though. He, he's preaching violence and destruction for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. People hated everything he had to say. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? Now here's what he goes on to say here in verse nine. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more of him in his name. Jeremiah is saying, if I just, maybe I'll just quit. 
Maybe I'll just stop this whole thing. I'm tired of it. Maybe I'll quit. But he says, I can't quit. Look what he goes on to say. Maybe I, maybe I should just stop. But there, is, or, but there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. Jeremiah is saying, yes, it's hard, but there is a sustaining grace in my life that just will not let me stop. It will not let me give up. Now the question becomes, what was that sustaining grace? What allowed Jeremiah to keep on keeping on when everything in him wanted to quit? When he was so, dis- what, what kept him going? Answer, Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five. Listen to what happens in, in these two verses. This is to start off his life in ministry. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah saying, and the word of God said to me this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's our word from Romans 8, 28. It's not just foresight. It's Jeremiah, I foreloved you. Man, I'm, I've watched over you. Before you were in the womb, Jeremiah, I was concerned about you. Before you in the, were in the womb, I chose you, Jeremiah. But I foreloved you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You know, from my personal experience, words like foreknowledge and predestined, here's here's my personal experience with them. They have gone down sideways for me. Like they get stuck in my throat and I hated them for a long time. I wanted to fight about them for a, a really long time. They were scratchy. I just didn't like it. All these objections kind of came up into my heart with God. It just went down so sideways. But when it eventually got down into my stomach, it became a medicine that cured a lot of evils in me and a lot of sin in me and a lot of distrust of God in me. And this is what happened for Jeremiah. When when that pill of realizing God foreloved me, God, he set his affection on me. Before the sun ever came up, Jeremiah is saying, God, God, God loved me before there was such a thing as the sun. And and that leads Jeremiah to know this, that even in the darkest of days, if God loved me like that, he's not gonna let go of me. God's not gonna abandon me. God's not gonna forsake me. If God loved me all the way back then, God's gonna love me now and God's gonna love me for the rest of eternity. Do you see the assurance that he was given there in that moment? See, this is not a theological point to debate. And if we trivialize the words foreknowledge and predestined into like theological debating points, we are missing their primary purpose. And that is to sustain us when life gets really dark and hard. See, the point of those words are to show us that God loved us all the way back here. So we can be convinced that God will love us all the way into the future. And we can be convinced that regardless of how hard and dark our days are right now, God has not abandoned us. That's what those words are meant to impart, that sort of deep comfort. Then we get to link number three. Link number one, God foreknew us. Link number two, God predestined us. Link number three, God called us. God called us. And those whom he, this is verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now notice here, the prefixes are now gone. The prefixes are dropped. There's no pre in front of that. There's no for in front of that called. So so what's happened here? The work of, of God has gone from eternity past before there was such a thing as time. It's gone from way back then. And it is fast forward in this word called all the way to our present experience. 
So God started something back then, but now God is working that out in your experience and in my experience. This is the word called. So what does he mean by the word called? Now, there are two general ways that the word called can be used in the Bible. The one way is, you might think of it this way, as the external call. That's one way the word call is mentioned, the external call. This is like um, the general call of God. This is uh, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the Bible, like maybe you're reading um, the gospels and you see Jesus make an invitation. Whosoever will believe in me, come on, you can have eternal life. That is the general call in the Bible. Anytime you hear a sermon preached in the Bible, think about Acts chapter two, when, sermon pre or when Peter preaches at Pentecost and he says, hey, do you wanna be saved? Here's what you do. You repent and believe. That is the general call of God. Anytime a pastor preaches, that's the general call of God. When you're sharing the gospel with a friend, that's the general call of God, right? It's that invitation from God that if you want Jesus, come and get him. Now we know that, this, that in this passage, the word called cannot be referring to that external or general call because we know that for all of those who are called, they are also justified right? They're, they're rescued. They're saved by God. But we know that many people will hear that external call, that invitation from Jesus, that invitation from a preacher, pastor, from a friend, and they will not be justified, right? So we know that it can't be that general call in this passage. So it's got to be this other sense of how the word call can be used. So if one sense is exter the external call, the other sense is the internal call. Now that's the sense that this passage is presenting it in. It's the internal call, <laughs> Now, if you want to kind of see this unpacked, Ephesians 2 is probably the place to see that. In Ephesians 2, Paul clarifies our condition when we're born. And here, how, this is the way Paul talks about, it. like when you come out of the womb and you land on this planet in time and space, here's what Paul says about you, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. Now, what does it mean to be dead? To be dead means that you are unresponsive. So then ask the question, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Or what does it mean to be dead in your sins and trespasses? It means that we are unresponsive to God. That's what it means to be dead in our sin. That we're not just dead in terms of like physical death, but we are spiritually dead. We, we are no longer responsive to God. Now that is the condition that you're born into and I'm born into. We are hostile toward God. We don't like God right? This is, our, this is the problem we all have. We're unresponsive to God. And if our unresponsiveness to God is our problem, it's the human problem, then the only solution to that problem is God himself breathing life into our heart. And that is exactly what Ephesians 4, what Paul says that God does. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, he says that we are dead in our sin. Then you get to verse 4 and it says, but God, but God made us alive. Can you believe that? We're unresponsive to God. We are, we are so content with living apart from God. And then God does something in us. He comes into our human like existence. He, become, he comes into our, like, our life, into our, our life and space. And he does something in our life. He makes our dead heart alive to him. And the first thing we do when our heart comes alive, the first thing a newborn baby does is cry out to God. The first thing a newborn, like spiritual baby does is they cry out in faith to God. This is the call of God. This is that internal call. If you wanna see it illustrated in the Bible, like put in story form, think of it in John 11. This is the moment when Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus. Now Lazarus has been dead four days if you've been dead four days, you're not just dead, you're like dead, dead. It's like dead times four. 
It is like a dead you don't, you don't get rescued from, right? But God comes up to Lazarus. He's four days dead. He comes up to the tomb. What does he say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come on out of there. And what happens? Lazarus has life breathed back into his soul and he stands up in his grave clothes and he walks out of the tomb alive. That is the internal call of God. This is what Paul is talking about here. It's this internal call. Now, I don't know how you would describe your conversion, but behind the scenes of whatever decision you made for Jesus was this, God looking at your dead heart and saying, I want your dead heart to come alive. I want it to breathe. I want it to come alive to me. And this is what Paul is assuring us of. He's using that moment to assure us, this is what God has done for you. And if God has done that for you, you can be certain God will do everything else for you. It's the third link in the chain of assurance. Then we get to the fourth link in the chain. Third link is that God calls us. The fourth link in the chain is that God justifies us. You see it there in verse 30. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, why would God justify us? Why would God do that? Answer. Because the people he foreloves, the people he predestines, the people he calls, those people are sinners. And their sin has separated them from him. And God has to do something about their sin. And, and the justifying work of God is what God has done about their sin and for their sin. The justifying work of God is God saying, hey, those who I love and those who I predestined, those who I've called, your sin is not gonna get the final word. What's gonna get the final word is my grace for your sin. That's what's getting the final word. So what does it mean for God to justify us? I think the easiest way to see that is in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is justification in one verse. And here's what it says. This is Paul, again, same guy who wrote Romans 8, saying this. For our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, but God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we, like you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, is that not an incredible passage? Think of that passage like this. There's two whiteboards. Whiteboard over here. This is whiteboard number one. On that whiteboard, just imagine us writing all of your sin, like your personal sin on that board. That list gets pretty long, doesn't it? For every moment where you have broken the, the uh, commandment, every moment that you have lusted, every moment of immorality, every moment of unrighteous anger, every moment of greed, every moment of every commandment you have ever broken, the, the, the whole whiteboard is full of your sin. Now imagine board number two over here. This board is um, us writing the perfect attributes of Jesus, his record of perfect law keeping. So we just write for every moment over here of your unrighteous anger, Jesus never had a moment of unrighteous anger. Can you believe that? He was perfectly patient. And when he was when angry, it was a perfectly righteous anger. He kept every command of God all the way down to the minute and minutia. He kept every last commandment, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God. Now here is what the word justification means. I just want you to imagine this. Justification is the moment where God takes everything on your board over here. And he takes all of the words on that board and he throws them down into a bag. Then over here on Jesus's board, he takes all of what was on Jesus's board and he takes all of those words and throws that into this bag. And then he takes all of your bag over here, this whole bag of your sin, and he throws all of those words onto the board of Jesus. 
So now he has become our sin. And then he takes everything in the bag that, that has Jesus's name on it. And he takes all of his perfect commandment keeping and he writes all of those words on your board. So that now Jesus has become our sin. That's exchange number one. And not only that, but now we have become the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Now, is that not incredible that God has that sort of grace inside of him? That, that is what it means to be justified. So, so let me just tease this out. To be justified means this, that on the cross, you weren't just pardoned of your sin. It's not just that God wiped your sin away. On the cross, you were not just pardoned. You were also perfected in the eyes of God. On the cross, your sins weren't just excused or, or done away with. On the cross, the perfection of Jesus was infused into you. On the cross, God treated Jesus like he was us. And now because of the cross, God treats us like we're Jesus. That's the fourth link in the chain. God justifies us. Now, let me just tease out one practical implication of this, one, one practical application. Here's what this means for you. Remember, the, the point is assurance. Here's what this means for you. That if you are in Christ, there is never going to be a day where God loves you more than he loves you right now. There's never gonna be a moment where God looks at you and, and says, you know what? They're, they're finally obeying me well enough that now I love them. There's never gonna be that moment. There's never going to be a moment where God looks at you and feels more excited about you than he looks at you right now. You're, you're not going to behave so good one day that God's like, finally, I just have like this unbridled love for them now that they've obeyed so well this, this particular day. That's never going to happen. This is what the word justified means. All of our sin is on Jesus. All of his righteousness is on us so that now when God looks at us, his heart leaps for joy just as if he was looking at his own perfect son, Jesus. That's the word justified, that God justified us. That's the fourth link in the chain. And here comes the fifth link in the chain, that God glorified us, that God glorified us. You see it there in verse 30. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One of my favorite, just concise, simple definitions of the good news of Jesus comes from a friend of mine. And he says it this way. He says, we're all idiots. That's the sobering part, right? We're all sinners in desperate need of grace. We're all idiots. Part number two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, our future is so, so bright. Part three, anyone can get in on this. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus and anyone can get in on this. Now, what does the word glory or glorification mean? That word is pointing us to the incredibly bright future we have in Jesus. That's where that word is taking us to this incredibly bright future that God has in store for his sons and daughters. Listen to Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book, describe and define the word glorification. He says it like this. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died. And he reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now, whether or not you know this, your soul deep down is groaning for glorification. It wants it so bad. 
I want it so bad deep down for that moment to happen. Now, what is that glorified existence gonna be like when your soul is reunited with a resurrected body? What is that going to be like for the sons and daughters of God? The Bible really just kind of invites us to imagine. I love what the old Puritan Jonathan Edwards, when he's just thinking about that, he says, man, just imagine, what, what if like in our glorified bodies, our resurrected bodies, what if rather than having five senses, what if we have a thousand senses to take in creation and God himself? Can you imagine what life would be like if you had a thousand senses, not just like see, taste, test, smell, that whole thing, but you had a thousand of those to take in God and creation? Um, C.S. Lewis just kind of wets our taste buds for what that's gonna be like when he says this. What, what are our resurrection bodies gonna be like? God will make the feeblest and faint, uh, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we're in for and nothing less. Can you imagine for all eternity what it's gonna look like to have a body that is vibrant? What it's gonna look like for you to have a resurrected body and soul that is full of wisdom and life and power, just pulsating with joy for all eternity. Can you imagine that? If you're a son or daughter of God, this word glorification is reminding you, your best days are not behind you. Your best days are in front of you. They lie out in your future. That's what the word glorification means for us. Now notice the past tense of this word. It doesn't say he will glorify you in the future. Paul says he has glorified you. Now, how in the world can that be true? How can he say something that is still in our future is in our past? How can he do that? What is Paul doing there in saying that it's past tense? Here's what I think he is doing. I think, okay, remember the, the, the theme is assurance. He's trying to assure you of the certainty of God's love. And here's what he is doing. He is showing you, this is how certain God's love for you is. Now think about this. This is how certain it is that I'm gonna take a future reality, your glorification, and I'm going to treat it as if it has already happened. And here's what it's showing you. It, God's love for you is so certain that you could treat it like that, that you could take that future reality and, and call it past tense because it is going to happen, because it is sure to happen, because there is nothing that can stop it from happening. Do you see that? I just love that he's calling it past tense just to show us. If you are buckled onto the unbreakable chain of assurance, glorification, we can just call it past tense, even though it's in the future, because that chain is so certain. God is so sure that he will never let go of that chain, that that future reality of your glorification, we can just put it in our rear view mirror as a past tense reality. I love that. Now, let me close with this. What is this passage meant to produce? What is it meant to do in your heart and in my heart? Answer, it is meant to produce heroic Christians. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to produce heroic Christians. And do you know what's so crazy? It has throughout church history. It's actually done that. And let me just give you one illustration from early church history. You might've heard of the name Polycarp. He's an interesting, you know, he lived in an interesting period of time. He lived um, right in that time where Christianity was transferring from the first generation of believers to the second generation of believers. Tradition has it that he was discipled by the apostle John and uh, made a bishop. 
And uh, when he was in his elderly years, I think he was 82 years old, in AD 86, the Roman authorities came after him. We don't know all the reasons why, but they came after him and their intent was to kill Polycarp. And his friends all wanted him to run and hide, but he wouldn't run and hide. He wouldn't do it. And finally, he was found by the Roman authorities and they pronounced the death sentence over his life and they told him, we are going to burn you at the stake. You are going to die and you're going to die by us nailing you to a stake and us lighting your flesh on fire. That's how it's going down. And so on the day of his death, they led him out to the stake to which they were about to nail him. And right before they put the nails in his body to get him stuck to the, to the stake, he looked at them and said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the stake unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Can you imagine that moment? He's saying, listen, you don't have to worry about nailing me to the stake because God's love for me right now feels more certain in my life. I feel it more deeply in my heart than my flesh is about to feel this fire. So don't worry about nailing me here. I'm gonna be right here. Don't, don't worry about the nails. His, the person who kind of chronicled his story went on to say that his martyrdom, martyrdom his, his death was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in the furnace. He went on to say that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. He is still, he is still spoken of even by the heathen in every place. Now that is the sort of courage, that is the sort of like heroic Christian that Romans 8 is intended to produce and it has produced it. And so here is our question as we end this little segment of Romans 8. The question goes like this, will we allow this chapter, this section of this chapter to produce that sort of heroicism in us? Will we allow it to produce that sort of confidence and assurance in us? By God's grace, I hope we will, amen? Let's pray together. I wanna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful this morning and to wipe away what would not be helpful. The good news of Jesus, we're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on it. If you're here today and you're not in on the incredibly bright future that Jesus has for you, man, what a morning to come and get that. If that's you, come and get him. Here's what that would look like. It's you turning from your sin and you throwing your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's you holding your life up to God and saying, I am trusting that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will rescue and save me. Here I am, God, take my life. And if that's you today, if you're holding up your life and you're saying that to God, God stands with arms wide open, ready to rescue you. The invitation is there, come and get him. Right now in this moment, give him your life. He will rescue and save you right now. Now for others of us in the room, we have come in limping, hurting, life is hard. Man, we just feel so bruised and so beaten. And what Paul is trying to do in this passage is show us 
God's plan for us started long ago and it extends way into the future, all the way into eternity. And if that plan that started long ago spans all the way into eternity, if we can have confidence in that plan, we can have confidence that right now God is here, that God loves us, that we are secure in his love. Paul is trying to get our feet all the way down to the bedrock of where we can be confident that God is 100% for us. And as Paul goes on to say, if God is for us, who in the world, what in the world could be against us? And we're gonna finish our service by taking communion. And if we wanna know how committed God is to us, how sure we can be of God's love, there's no better place to look than the cross of Christ. It is there on the cross that God let go of his beloved son, Jesus, so that he could take hold of us. It's there on the cross that he abandoned his beloved son, Jesus, so that he could bring us into his family as adopted sons and daughters. This is how much God loves you. You can be so certain of his love because if God would give, if God would give his beloved son, his most precious treasure for you, how much more would he give you all things? If God would give that to you, you can be confident that whatever you're going through right now, however dark it is, that God has not abandoned you. God is not going to let go of you. He never will let go of you. And as you take communion, I'm praying that, that the spirit of God would remind us, this is how unshakable the love of God is. It's as unshakable as the cross of Christ. So when you dip the bread in the juice this morning, and you eat the bread, you are, you are seeing and experiencing the visible reminder of God's love for you. The visible reminder of just what God was willing to do to show you, he is for you, he cares for you, he loves you. So, oh God, this morning, would you convince us of that? God, would we leave here with more than a mental awareness God, by your grace, would we leave here with an experiential awareness that you really love us. God, help us. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com.